Heavenly Father, we are always reminded um, every morning when we get up and we look at a mirror of two things. One, that we cannot see ourselves, and two, that we have ears. And so, Lord, because what we uh, see is limited to our own perception, uh, we need the help of a divine God who shows us our own reality. But also you've given us ears to hear, and you are a God who has spoken and acted in history. You've recorded it for us in your word. So give us ears to hear all that your Holy Spirit would have us here today, that we might apply it to our lives in terms of faith and repentance, that it might bear fruit not only in our personal worship of you, but in the expansion of worship both here in Missoula and across the globe. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So here we are. We made it. First Sunday of a new year, which means that there's two groups of people in here. There's some groups of people who are planners who have itemized agendas and ticking time clocks for all the things they want to accomplish this coming year. And then there's people who are still thinking about what they're going to do for lunch this morning or perhaps now realizing they didn't yet eat breakfast today. And yet both of those groups are similar in that neither of them know what this new year will hold. And just like Queen Elsa, all of us are ventured out to go into the unknown. Will we get the promotion? Will we be able to afford that house? Will our kids be safe? Will the Grizz win? Will my sickness end? And what's interesting is actually the more significant the concern, the less control we actually have over it, don't we? And this is true even for Christians. We are not fortune tellers. Conversion to Jesus Christ does not give us a magical view into the future as it relates to our daily experience. Conversion to Jesus, even though it tells us how everything ends, does not remove moments of uncertainty and doubt or even moments of discomfort and disease. But the Bible helps us and frames our reality by calling us to look at these questions a little bit differently. The Bible is less concerned about knowing the unknowns. That's where anxiety and sometimes apathy live. We can't know, therefore we give up, or we must know, therefore we are so anxious to discern what is to come and to be prepared. But the Bible instead calls us to be aware of who we are following into life's unknowns. We do not know everything. We are creation, but there is a creator. And through the gospel, that creator has entered into our reality in the eternal son of Jesus Christ and called us to follow him in all that we do not know. And as we return to our study through the book of Luke, today we are beginning the end. This text starts the clock on the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And in true Sovereign Hope fashion, it's going to shape the next three months of ours. And Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this reality But at this point, they can't wrap their minds around the idea that Jesus would die. He must be speaking metaphorically or spiritually. What's the reality? Because certainly the Messiah would not be betrayed into the hands of Gentiles and killed on a cross. Alternatively, the religious officials at this time have been working since way back in the book of Luke. And they would give anything for the reality that Jesus would die. And yet they are also struck not knowing how to accomplish this. How are we going to put Jesus to death? And it seems like no one knows anything except the one who is freely going to give his life on the cross, Jesus himself. And in the face of uncertainty and in competing desires today, our texts focus on two groups of people. There's Judas and the officials who scheme against Jesus, leaning into the comfort and counsel of men. 
And then there are Jesus' disciples, who in the moment of uncertainty lean into the counsel and promise of their master. Our life is full of such moments all the time. And our hope is that we would find Jesus, his word and his work, sufficient to make sense of our own realities, our own unknowns, and our own worries. You'll notice at the end of our text today, there's only one group of people that gets everything that they hoped for, and I pray that we might find Jesus, and in finding Jesus, we too might find that everything is furnished and prepared, just as he has said. And so our main point this morning is this. In an evil and uncertain world, Jesus is our only certainty. In an evil and uncertain world, Jesus is our only certainty. And so kids, that's the main point. There's going to be three uh, smaller points, three sub-points to help us see that today. The first is going to be the betrayal, or excuse me, the backdrop of the Passover. And then there's going to be the betrayal of evil. And then there's going to be the provision of Jesus. And so first we're going to examine the backdrop of the Passover. And Luke paints this scene for us broadly in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. He says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Luke is painting here what the art world calls the mise-en-scene, the spelled mise-en-scene. And what this is, is when you watch a film, when you go to a play, there's all this dialogue and action that happens, but a good filmmaker and a good playwright frames the story in the background itself, the colors, the, the tapestries, the framing, the shots, the lighting, all of that. One screenwriter describes the mise-en-scene saying this. It says, it fills in narrative details that dialogue alone cannot. It is the artistic and creative way to express a story beyond dialogue. Without it, film and television would be two-dimensional. So even film writers realize that without a meta-narrative, everything's flat. And we realize that because we are created inside of the creator's narrative. Filmmakers get to experiment with lights and settings as tools, but the God of the Bible uses history as a tool to paint the depth of our reality. And in his providence, this scene is framed with the tapestries and textures of the Passover feast. Much like Christmas and New Year that we just came out of, The Jewish feasts of the Passover and unleavened bread were kind of meshed together, two feasts, but in one continual celebration. And both of these feasts, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, were tied to the miraculous deliverance God worked to redeem his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt by his own power and might and to bring them into the promised land. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Passover and its feast next week. But right now it's important to know that the Passover was the crown jewel of the Jewish calendar. And we find its origin story in Exodus chapter 12, on the night when God would bring his people out of Egypt. God had sent nine plagues on the nation of Egypt, trying to convince them to let God's people go. But as God hardened and as Pharaoh refused to let them go, it was to bring about this 10th and final plague, which God was thinking thousands of years forward to. The plague of the firstborn. If God's people were to be delivered, blood had to be shed. That night, God was going to go through the land of Egypt and every firstborn male was going to be put to death. It didn't matter if you were the lowest Israelite slave. It didn't matter if you were the highest official in Pharaoh's house. 
But God made a way of escape. He provided a simple but providential provision, a substitute death. If anyone were to take a lamb, a firstborn lamb without spot or blemish, sacrifice it, and then take the blood of that lamb and paint the doorposts of their home, they would be spared. This seems silly, doesn't it? Kids, do we have any firstborn in here today? All of us say, rise up, okay? You're all taking notes and paying attention. The rest of you are like eating gum off the floor. Um, anyway, if someone said to you, hey, you're going to die, but if you just you know, paint some blood on your door, you'll be fine. That seems unbelievable. That seems risky. But God's people obeyed God's word, and they did it. And guess what? They were spared. God was faithful. Every Israelite family that covered their door with the blood of the lamb was spared. There was grieving in all of Egypt, and Pharaoh released God's people. In Exodus 12, God institutes this Passover feast as a perpetual memorial that Israel might teach their children the power, the wonder, the mercy of a God who saves his people through sacrifice. So it's no irony that here, centuries later, the Passover takes center stage, but in the backdrop. That God has so orchestrated the murderous hearts of these officials seeking to kill Jesus to reach its culmination, its pinnacle at the feast of the Passover. This is something that Luke has been building all along. It paints the final and full indictment of Israel's failures. How broken is Israel? Broken enough to seek to murder Jesus on the night of the Passover. You see, when Israel didn't know what to do in Egypt, what did it do? It cried out to God to deliver them from the hand of their oppressors. But what's happening here? How much has Israel forgot? Well, on this Passover, when Israel didn't know what to do, it cries out to be delivered by their Roman oppressors from God himself. They were to seek Rome's help to be delivered from the Son of God, where the Passover reminded that they cried out to God for help to be delivered from their oppressors. Yet in all this irony, God was in control. In other words, it wasn't ironic at all. Psalm 2 says this prophetically, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So that anointed is uh, the word that we get Messiah from in the New Testament. And so he's talking here prophetically about the Christ and they take counsel against the Lord and his anointed saying this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So that's the cry of men. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here, as darkness came, evil men plotted. But behind it is the laughter of the Lord. Tolkien coined this phrase, the catastrophe. It's the good catastrophe. And that's what's happening here. This is what Tolkien draws that inspiration from that shapes all of Middle Earth. Here, there would be blood on this Passover. Blood would be shed. But far from breaking the bonds of God's king, it would establish that king forever. 
We'll talk more about that next week, how that new covenant in Jesus replaces the Passover because it's been fulfilled. But we already see that these schemers had a problem, didn't they? What was that problem? If you look back at verse 2, these men were the power brokers, and yet they feared the people. They thought they were the bosses. They thought they were the ones in control. They thought they had the influence, and yet they were ruled by the voices of the poor and of the many. You see, it's only by submitting ourselves to the rule of Jesus that any of us can ever be freed from the fear of man. All of us are ruled by something. We were made to be ruled. He is creator. We are creation. The question is, who is ruling you? And to be ruled by anyone other than Jesus is to be held captive to what the author of Hebrews says is fear of death forever. It is unbreakable. But Proverbs 4.27 reminds us of this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You see, only a fear of Jesus, a good fear, a holy fear, ever delivers us from the fear of anything else. And here's why we have to remember this. Why is this connected to this scene at all? Well, because what's going on? These men thought things were getting out of hand. They've returned to Jerusalem, the power center, and they're worried. They're frustrated. They're hardened in sin, and they're fearful. And we have to remember in times like this, when we feel those same things, that it's only in submitting ourselves to Jesus that we can ever find deliverance. And we have to remember that it's only Jesus who can deliver. Why? Because we see in this text that Satan is always eager to provide an alternative. Satan is quite hospitable to your felt needs. He loves to provide a solution. Do you see it? These men want, men want Jesus dead. They're losing control. They fear the crowds. They need an intimate and private way to trap Jesus. And it just so happens, here comes Satan and Judas. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. If you've ever watched the wonderful theological documentary, Aladdin, you've realized that genies exist to give you what you want. How this shows us that God is no genie because Satan is giving exactly what they want and it is not producing life. It is feeding the evil death that is at play in their hearts. God knows what we need and he gives us Jesus. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word that conforms our wants to line up with the reality of our needs. But Satan knows what we want and is eager to give it to you in order to betray you. He says, you want Jesus apart from a crowd? That's it? I've got just the thing you need. Have you met my friend Judas? He'll fix everything. And here we see our second point this morning. The betrayal of evil. The betrayal of evil. And at last, one of these groups, both walking into the unknown, one of them gets relief. There is a certain plan on a silver platter. They couldn't get Jesus alone. They didn't know his plans. But here, here is Judas. Judas Iscariot. 
Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. Why is Luke reminding us of all of this? Because he's telling us this is one of the insiders. This is the one who knows everything. This is the one who knows Jesus' calendar. This is the one who's managing Jesus' money bag. Here was their hope. It's a fitting thing for us this new year to have a clear point of application in our sermon. Don't be like Judas, okay? Many of you traveled and visited other churches this, this Christmas season. Judas is, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> and so we could joke about not being a Judas. And yet, there is something for us to learn in this text. But we must be mindful of how we learn that as well. It could easily be misunderstood. And so in other words, when we read this passage, we need to understand it in light of two truths. Truth one is, there is only one Judas Iscariot. Truth two is, any one of us could have been Judas Iscariot. And so I want to touch on both of those quickly. Regarding that there's only one Judas Iscariot, the uniqueness of Judas, we need to understand the, histo- uh, the historic and the theological perspective of what's going on here. There's only one Judas Iscariot who betrayed his Lord on the eve of the Passover. Jesus himself points out to the unique and almost prophetic role Judas uh, plays, and we'll see this next week in verse 22. He says this, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The Bible speaks generally of the way in which sin condemns all of us to death. All have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. But here is the man, the one, who would betray Jesus over to the officials. And that man was Judas Iscariot. His role was unique. It was exclusive. It fit the bill of prophecy. David says this in Psalm 55, verse 12 through 13. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Just as King David was betrayed several times by near friends and family, so too is the greater David handed over by one of his own. There was one historic figure who was going to betray Jesus, and it was Judas. And this is where we need to remember that the Bible is not mere spiritual allegory. It is history. This really happened, and Judas was not you. And this unique historic role is also relevant when it comes into Satan's return to Luke's narrative. Satan has been gone since the opening chapters of Luke where we see Jesus tempted in the desert. And now he has made a return in the person of Judas Iscariot. And one commentator said it this way. He said, in the temptation, Satan entices. In the passion, he threatens. And Luke says, you probably picked up on this, that Satan entered Judas. John's gospel indicates that Satan's influence was ongoing. It happened several times over this. And we're reminded here that though Satan is powerful, he is not God and he is not sovereign. Though he entered into Judas, Judas was already acting according to his own desires. In John chapter 12, it tells us that John was already at this point stealing from Jesus and the disciples because he was a thief, greedy for his own gain. And even though Satan's activity is pre- present throughout the rest of John's gospel, so is John's, or Judas's eagerness to do evil. 
Notice the words here. Here, let's do some Bible study. Look back at verse 4 and 5. We see that Judas is not an unwilling partner here. Notice how Luke affirms Satan's actions. Satan entered. But also we see the actions and the affections of Judas as a willing co-conspirator. Look at it. It says, he went, he conferred, he agreed, he consented, he sought. Satan was working, doing exactly what he wanted. But Judas was also working, doing exactly what he wanted. You see, in Judas, the charges of insurrection and of guilt are combined on both the spiritual and the human level. The forces of darkness of the spiritual realm and fallen humanity on the created realm. Satan was involved in a unique way because he is the chief opponent of Jesus. He has been biding his time in this cosmic resurrection and he, or cosmic insurrection, and he was not going to leave this to chance. He was going to use every last bit of his power to make sure this happened. Now, this could raise a lot of questions for us and actually does with the disciples as well. You'll notice it shows up a little bit next week in Luke. It shows up more in Matthew. But as soon as Jesus tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray him, what's their first question? Is it me? (laughs) Could it be me? There is some good humility of asking ourselves that question, of knowing honestly our own hearts and saying, is it me? (laughs) Am I the guy? Am I that broken? But our answers to that question must be careful to take into consideration the uniqueness again of what's going on. If the question is this, can Satan enter me as he entered Judas and directly influenced him? Then the answer is certainly no at two levels, right? The first is from the historic level. There was one Judas, and it's not you. None of you are going to physically betray Jesus over to Rome for his crucifixion. But secondly, if you're a believer, Satan has no ruling, dominion, or right over you. We are instead filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Corinthians 1.13. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We are not under the domain of darkness. Read 1 Corinthians. See how Paul talks about light and darkness and being a temple of God and what fellowship we have with the temples of idols that cannot have fellowship with one another. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, but we are not neutral. Instead, he has transferred us to the kingdom, here, dominion of his son. We are under, as believers, the exclusive dominion of Jesus Christ. If you're a non-believer in here today, this probably offends you greatly. That you would be under the dominion of the devil. But this is true. And all that Judas freely desires, so too do you. And this is why we need the man who Judas is betraying. This is why we need a fear to displace our worldly fears. But rule and dominion are different than influence, right? So if the question is, can Satan directly rule and have dominion over me like Judas? No. But if the question is, can Satan still influence me and tempt me to evil? Then the answer is certainly yes. Judas reminds us we have an internal and an external battle. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You can rationalize religion and the supernatural away all you want, but it doesn't change reality. With all that we can know and touch and study, there is a world beyond it, and there is one worldview that shows it to us, and you have two options. You accept it, or you reject it. And brothers and sisters, if this is true, if God is the creator, then reject it to your own peril. There are spiritual forces at play in our world that desire to entice you to sin. And so none of us will betray Jesus as Judas betrayed Jesus, but all of us are capable of being betrayed like Judas was betrayed. Judas not only betrayed, but he himself was betrayed. He was betrayed by the lies of evil. He was betrayed by the false promises of Satan. And when that happens to us, when we are led to believe the wrong lies of the devil, then we, in a much lesser degree, do not betray Jesus to the cross in a historical precedent. But instead what we do is we're betraying, in that moment, everything that we're confessing Jesus to have done. We're saying that I don't actually believe you've accomplished this. I believe this can be my greatest good. This should not be of a surprise to us. Peter tells us this. Peter, who is at this very table, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I had one friend say that we don't live in a spiritual Switzerland. Nothing is neutral. The garden shows us that. We are made to be influenced. We are influenced. And we ought to be wise. Now, on the cross, Satan bit off more than he can chew. His cooperation with Judas sealed his final fate, predicted in Genesis 3.15, that the serpent crusher would come, and though he bites the heel, his head would be crushed. He's finally going to be put away. But until that time, he's going to try and bite and nibble on as many people as he can. So we should be mindful of the ways in which Satan seeks to prey on our affections and to call us away from Jesus to call us to what Satan calls demonic in James, which is simply what he says, wisdom from below, selfish, self-seeking. And so let's consider how this temptation was potentially already at work in Judas. Why Judas betrayed? Well, Satan worked and Judas desired. What seems to be the primary motivation of Judas's desire? Well, if we look at the gospel accounts, it seems to be greed. He was motivated by gain. And so perhaps he began to follow Jesus in hopes that, if this Messiah was going to start a political revolution, that if he was one of these lieutenants, he would have a piece of the pie, get some wealth, get some honor, get some privilege, some power. But as Jesus begins to start talking more of his death, when his ministry seems to be attracting more poor people than powerful people, and when he comes into Jerusalem and bypasses all of Rome's token places of influence and instead targets the temple and the religious elite, maybe he's beginning to wonder if he backed the wrong horse. And maybe Satan comes and begins to whisper into his ear saying, if you want your cut, you got to take it now. If you wanted to gain anything of worldly power, of worldly possession, or of worldly influence, it's not going to be in following Jesus. It's going to be in making a trade while he still has value. Get what you can out of him. Get your peace. Get your comfort. You'll notice in verse 5, Judas was comforted 
by his greedy gain. You'll also notice that the officials were comforted in their emotional gladness. Judas gained, the officials were glad. Everyone's anxiety was put at ease. Everyone had peace. There was a man with a plan, but they were deceived. In a few short chapters, when we see the cross and the resurrection, we see how the smile of those smitten by sin is cast into deeper anxiety and despair, an empty tomb, and at the death of Jesus. Sin makes us fools. It always betrays us. I've heard it said before that sin promises like a God, but pays like a devil. And apart from God's grace, any of us could be Judas. So what do we do? Well, Peter already told us and warned us, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But right before that, do you know what he says? He says this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. One thing you'll see comes up in Matthew's account. When Judas went to these officials, the officials did not care about Judas. Judas came and tried to return his money. You know what they said? What does this have to do with us? They don't care about Judas. Satan did not care about Judas. But brothers and sisters, we have a creator God who cares for us. One who, as we just looked at in our series on the incarnation and Advent, who sympathizes with us, made like us in every respect, except without sin. We have a high priest who knows us. You see, Judas sought counsel with men to satisfy the desires and the distress of his heart, when all the while, what could he have done with his discomfort and his dis-ease? Talk to Jesus. He is one of the 12. When we don't know what to do, when we feel lost in sin, we must always look to Jesus. What does it look like? It looks like asking the same questions of those men to the Messiah. It says, Jesus, my heart is frustrated and confused. I want worldly gain. I don't know what's going on. I feel I'm about to lose it all. Maybe for you, it looks like saying I'm stealing, I'm envious, I'm lustful, I'm hateful. Can you help me? And like a skilled surgeon, this Savior will cut out that disease. And like a tender shepherd, he will mend your wounds. Sin will always betray you, but Jesus never will. He is faithful to deal with it precisely because he is the true Passover lamb. He was built to take your sin. He was built to take your fear. He was built to take your anxiety because he took on flesh to do just that. This is our third point this morning, the provision of Jesus. Now, I want you to hold what we've just read, scene one of the preparation of the Passover, evil betrayal. Now we're going to see scene two of the preparation of the Passover. And I want you to hear what's similar and what's dissimilar in this passage, beginning in verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, 
where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. In the opening verses, six verses, we see men preparing for the Passover by preparing to kill Jesus. And in these latter verses, the disciples are preparing for the Passover by trusting in Jesus, unaware of the greater Passover unfolding before their eyes. Judas took counsel with men as the unknowns began to mount. But see, notice how profound a difference a simple question to the right person makes. Where? Where are we going to do this? Where do you want us to go? We don't know much, but they knew who to ask where. And what did Jesus do? He told them where. And what did they find? Everything was prepared just as Jesus said. God was so in control of history to such detail that his miraculous providence led to his faithful disciples finding a room fully furnished for the Passover meal while simultaneously working through the evil intentions of Judas and the officials to secure the greater provision of the Passover lamb. There are so many things we can look to to make sense of our world. We can look to our emotions, follow them. We can look to our bank accounts and fund them. We can look to our Instagram influencers or our favorite philosophers and listen to them. We can look for truth and grounding under every rock and tree, but the only person who will ever have hope is the person who puts their hope subjected under Jesus and listens to his word. This is not merely intellectually true if he is the creator, but it is experientially true because he is the savior. This is where we find things fully furnished. For the disciples, things are going to continue to unwind quickly. Confusion is still going to be there. Unknown is still going to be there. Uncertainty is going to remain. For us, we will feel lost and we will feel confused. We might need to cry out for guidance, but this Jesus will never betray us. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in Romans 10. Verse 11 saying this, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So I ask you, who are you following? To whom do you look when things seem bleak? What do you run to read when your heart quivers? Who do you attempt to hear when all you hear is thunder? And who do you trust when it seems you've lost control? And what we can glean from this text is that we can trust in the word of Jesus because we have seen the work of Jesus. So we trust in his word quite blatantly. That's what's happening here. Peter and John had to take Jesus at his word. 
You see, someone carrying a, a jar of water, we saw this actually in our Advent series, uh, that was typically a woman's job. If men were to carry things in public, they did it as if they're going to work and they had wineskins. But to have a man carrying a jar was not normal, especially on this night, the night when thousands of Jews were packing into Jerusalem. And the fact that they would follow this man to his master's house and ask that master if he had a room fully prepared when thousands of Israelites were coming to Jerusalem, knocking out the Airbnb market, getting every room. And not only would he have a room, but this room would be fully furnished for the Passover feast. But what did they do? They listened to his word. And what did they find? It was furnished just as he There is no safer place for you to put your emotions and your fears than in the word of God. The weight of life is crushing. Let Jesus carry it for you. Remember, Jesus himself is distressed. Luke 12, 50. He says, I have a bapt- this last week. I have a baptism for which I am to, to be baptized, and I'm, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus knows the weight of this world. In fact, almost more than uncertainty, Jesus knew the certainty of what awaited him on that cross. But unlike us, Jesus only makes wise decisions in the heat of difficult emotions. One military commander once famously quipped that no plan ever survived first contact with the enemy. If you're a parent, you know that to be true. If you've tried to start working out this new year, You probably know that to be true as well. We know that to be true when we enter into marriage. We show up after cramming all weekend for our test and we realize that we studied for none of this. In that moment, what happens? Our heart rate starts to flutter. Our face gets flush. We begin to sweat. I do. And all these things happen because we were not prepared for this. And yet, we serve a Messiah who encountered the worst of the enemy and who was unflappable in the face of all darkness. One who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and he has given in the midst of it all his word. His word which proves true, which orients our hearts. Run to it, read it, submit yourself to it. This is the greatest act of humility you will ever have, but this is the only hope you will ever have. And this is no empty word. Because we of all people have seen the events that this Jesus told us about in his word. We have seen the work of Jesus. Peter, John, Judas, everyone else only had the promise, but we had the fulfillment. We know the end of the story. We know that he did die for our sins. We know he did bear the penalty of it. We know he really did rise again. He really did walk among his disciples. He really did ascend to heaven. And brothers and sisters, he really is coming back. The provision of the Passover feast furnished in that room reminds us that even when it seems evil has stolen the narrative and darkness has won, God is still in control. We can look back to the Passover and see it. We could look even further back to the events of Joseph 
in the latter part of Genesis, where in order to get rid of Joseph's influence, his brothers sell him into slavery. And what do they think? We've done it. We've gotten rid of his influence and his authority only to come back to him in Egypt as the second most powerful man in all the land, getting salvation from Joseph when he says, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. In the book of Esther, the evil Haman plotted the total genocide of the Jews. He built a gallows on which to hang his least favorite person, the dirty Jew Mordecai. And yet through Esther's faithful reliance upon God's word that he would keep his covenant promise, the plot was revealed. King Ashurus declared the eradication not of Israel, but of all of Israel's enemies. And that Haman was hung on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. What seems to be evil is shown to be a tool of good in the hand of a God who is good. He is trustworthy. And this could not be any more true than in the cross. You see, all of us, whatever you believe today, you are preparing for the final Passover. You are either preparing as those who are plotting in their heart, rebelling against him, and stand condemned for the death that you in your sin have caused to become the Son of God. Or you are preparing for that Passover by reliance upon him, wherein he furnishes you with all salvation. He is faithful. Trust in him. Gregory of Nazianus says it this way. He that is Jesus is sold and cheap was the price. 30 pieces of silver. Yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. A sheep he has led to the slaughter. Yet he shepherds Israel and now the whole world. The lamb is our shepherd. Follow him. Listen to him. Psalm 2 opened describing the clashing of nations and the conspiracy against the sun. And it closes with this. How might we follow this lamb? Psalm 2.12. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Passover lamb has come. He is our refuge. Let us kiss the son by submitting ourselves to his word, by acknowledging his work on the cross, and by trusting it amidst all that comes. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude today in taking the Lord's Supper, what a physical and tangible reminder that the evil works of men do not foil the promise of God. But in fact, you are so sovereign, so good, and so powerful that you have ordained that it is through the desires of evil that you work a greater good. And so as we take these elements, remind us that we must first take Christ. We must take him at his word. We must trust that he alone can provide the furnished salvation that we all need, not merely in taking a feast, 
but in taking the wonderful merits of Christ that came when his body was broken and his blood poured out. So Lord, as we just take mere bread and juice, remind us that what we take is full assurance, certainty of a God able to be trusted. We see on the cross the weight of evil's betrayal and the grace of him who was betrayed for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, today, next week.